0: Hey folks, it's Andy, the analytical preacher with a second podcast here on the topic of why Jesus is so opposed to self-righteousness and virtue signaling. We discussed in the first part that the main reason Jesus is so opposed to this is for religious reasons because it's simply the more we try to convince other people, whether we believe it ourselves or not, the more we try to convince other people that we're moral, that we're righteous, that we have a higher standing than they do, the more we actually convince ourselves that we don't need the righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus came to literally say to humans, you are not holy enough, perfect enough for a perfect God. I have come to show you what ultimate righteousness looks like. You'll see yourself compared to me, understand your spiritual shortcomings, and that will open your heart to accept me and my righteousness that I'm willing to grant you through grace if you put your faith in me. And so obviously, if I spend too much time in the day comparing myself to others, trying to make myself look good, look righteous, look moral, look like I'm on the right side of the issues to other people, I ultimately convince myself that I stack up pretty well. Of course, my comparisons are always very self-serving, but I convince myself I stack up pretty well, and that deadens my need. It closes my heart up to that gospel message of I need to be saved by grace through faith. But as we also talked about in the last podcast, there's not just the direct religious harm to me. There's indirect harm to other people as well, and it's not just in the religious arena. And so one of the reasons that folks like Jesus and John the Baptist were so opposed to this moral posturing, this self-righteousness, this virtue signaling, as we call it today. The reason they were so opposed is because it does impact, negatively impact. It does harm others. So we talked about in the last podcast, the five sort of areas where this harm can sort of show up. Let me just go through each of these five, but use non-religious examples this time, as opposed to the religious examples we used last time. And the the first point is just It can very much discourage us when we feel that we can't keep up with the demanding moral requirements that all the self-righteous virtue signalers are putting out there. And I can give you a really quick but painful sort of real world example. I've had more than one young adult tell me that this is a major issue on school, and college campuses, that there are now so many what they call woke rules. In my day, we used to call it PC, politically correct. There are so many woke rules out there about what you're supposed to support and not support and what products you can buy versus what products you're not supposed to buy, what teams you can pull for and what you're supposed to call people. They say they literally just give up. And I've had kids tell me that they're going to go to a homeschool environment. They're going to teach themselves essentially with YouTube videos. I've had kids talk about they're just going to go do college online. They have to get off the college campus because it is so demoralizing to them. To be treated this way, to constantly be told every day, every move they make, even when their heart is decent and their intentions are good, every move they make, somebody is telling them that they're wrong. Somebody is making sure they understand I'm better than you are because I wouldn't make the mistake you just made. And we're really, I think, making young people just throw up their hands and just give up. They're pulling out of these social interactions, which we desperately need as humans schooling themselves at home, doing online school, wanting to work from home, all to avoid this woke sort of a PC environment where they just feel like they can't keep up. The second thing we talked about, of course, is as we become more self-righteous, As we try to convince more and more people of how good we are, ultimately, hypocrisy is going to rise along with that self-righteousness. And we're just not going to be able to ever be as good as we're trying to tell everybody else we are. And so eventually the hypocrisy rises and we get caught. And here's what happens. We may be trying to promote a good, like we're trying to promote the gospel. But when we act like hypocrites, people don't really take us as valid ambassadors for the gospel. The same thing can happen. The classic example, of course, of this where harm is ultimately done to the message by the messengers themselves is in the area of environmental stuff. And and particularly we use the phrase climate change today. You know, if, if you said to me, who are the best spokespeople? Who are the best individuals to promote sensitivity to environmental issues or to climate change? you would say, oh, well, it's got to be celebrities or other people of fame, people that sort of have good charisma and standing. Because the folks that work on this in the backrooms, the scientists and the policy analysts, I mean, just to be honest, some of them are almost as big a nerd as I am, and they don't make real good spokesmen. But when the celebrities or the other famous people, again, these great orators, when they get behind, the message can really get out there. Here's the problem. All of the famous people who were speaking out against climate change lost their credibility a long time ago. And I think every one of them lost every ounce of credibility that they have. And all of these people, self-righteous people just morally signaling to us over and over have become so hypocritical. That they're just they're just hollow voices. They literally just go to conferences and talk to each other now. Nobody else listens. Nobody else cares. And so you see a list come out. Here's the celebrities that put the most carbon dioxide in the air. And you see very popular names, Taylor Swift and Oprah Winfrey, and all these other folks are on this list. Their private planes are being used for all of these things. You hear about the private planes that the climate czar. Uh, For Biden, uh, John Kerry, you hear about the private plane that he has and how much carbon dioxide is in the air. You read about the different houses that John Kerry has, the different houses that Al Gore has or the heated pools that Al Gore has. You see Greta traveling to all of these climate conferences to stand up and self-righteously tell everybody else how wrong they are, as opposed to as opposed to joining those conferences online. Zoom and Skype are a real thing And we could use them. And so, again, instead of these celebrities, these famous people telling us how important the environment is and what they're doing to personally sacrifice for the good of mankind, they don't sacrifice. They look hypocritical and they tell us that we should be sacrificing more. The message may or may not be good. You can agree or disagree that the message needs to be made and needs to be made more strongly. My point is simply whether the message is good or not, the people making it have failed to get traction simply because of the hypocrisy. We also talked about a third point is there's an odd twist in human nature that when moral posturing, uh, when it becomes too common, it actually can cause us to focus our energy on the thing that we quote unquote don't like as opposed to positively supporting the things that we do like. Gave some religious examples last time. Let me give you one political example. There's a New York congresswoman, and she just goes by her initials. There's a New York congresswoman, and she pushed back that Amazon wanted to open a second headquarters near her district, right at the edge, I think, of her district in Queens, New York. Now, there are always problems with an issue like this. There were some tax breaks that local politicians were going to give to facilitate the move, which really bothers Christians, but it happens frequently. So there were some tax breaks, and I can understand there being some issues with that. And big companies like Amazon, I mean, we have to be careful, right? Amazon's not out for the good of me or you. Amazon's out for the good of Amazon. But here's the thing. Amazon does provide reasonable products at cheap prices, and they do employ an awful lot of people. So I don't have to worship Amazon or love Jeff Bezos. I have no desire to know Jeff Bezos personally or spend any time with him. He's divorced from his wife and all the other things that I really wish our culture could move away from. But here's the truth. I think it would have been good for the constituents in Queens, New York, if Amazon had put their second headquarters there, and then those individuals would have had an opportunity to get those jobs. And you say, well, then maybe they already have a job. Well, maybe, but maybe they go to Amazon and say, well, I already have a job. Would you be willing to offer me this or give me health care, or give me insurance if I change from that job to this job? And so it really would have provided benefits to the constituents. Here's the problem. In our world today, sometimes we can get a substantial amount of sort of put this in quotes, virtue credit, for opposing big businesses. And when we are posturing, when we're virtue signaling, getting that credit from opposing a big business, it sort of accrues to us all at once. And it's public. I can go and say, I stood up against a big business. I'm against big business. I put the big business in their place. And we pat ourselves on the back. And then we say to ourselves, and it's implied to other people, I am a righteous and moral person, maybe even more righteous and moral than other people because of what I've done. I just think the constituents would have been a lot better off to have that option of getting a job at Amazon. Here's what I think a politician should do. Get the headquarters there. Help your constituents have an option for a different job. If they take jobs at Amazon and you hear from them in your local meetings back home when you're not in Washington that things are going this way or that way, then maybe you help them organize a union at that second headquarter to help deal with some of those issues. Now you've not only brought big business jobs to your district, but now you've helped unionize some of the jobs in your district, which again, I would think a Democratic congresswoman from New York would be all in favor of that. The problem is, again, when we virtue signal sometimes, when we're too too interested in moral posturing, we begin to work against the stuff we dislike. I want credit for being against a business. More than I want credit for being for my constituents. And here's the problem. Let's say 500 people or a thousand people would have gotten jobs at Amazon. How do I get the credit for those thousand people getting that job? They get it one by one. Each one is just a middle class, lower class worker. There's nothing public about it. And so sure, 500, 600, a thousand people, whatever it was, I have no idea. Over time, over the years would have gotten a good job there but there's no credit that accrues. And so, again, sometimes the moral posturing just, it makes us against something as opposed to for something, which Christians are always very wary about. The fourth point is uh, simply this, through superficial signaling, through moral posturing, we can convince, not only ourselves, but we can convince others that something is done, that something is being done or something has been done on an important issue, when in fact, maybe nothing impactful has been done on that issue. But because I keep posturing about it, it makes people think maybe it's in better shape than it really is. I'll give you a classic example. I don't think anybody denies that the police officer who murdered George Floyd should not have even been on patrol that day in May of 2020 in Minneapolis. The gentleman, the the police officer, had around a dozen and a half. That's a massive number. The police officer had around a dozen and a half complaints filed against him for misuse of authority. One of those complaints was that he had handcuffed a young black teenage man, put him on the floor in his mother's apartment, put his knee on his back and his knee on his neck, and the mother was asking the officer Can you please let him up? I don't think he can breathe. So we knew that this man had a tendency to abuse authority. Not only was he on the beat in May of 2020, he was actually an officer that was teaching, that was supervising new recruits, kind of what you would say, add insult to injury, right? The problem with that is, The police union contracts with the municipalities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, etc., those police union contracts don't allow an officer to be disciplined as they should when they have a dozen and a half complaints. That's where we have to fix the problem. But when I talked to some young folks not long ago, and I believe all of them were in college, I asked them a group of uh, probably eight or nine of them if they thought that progress was being made on this subject, this idea of police abuse or police racism, however they saw it, every single one of them said, yes, we are making progress. Progress is being made. I asked them, could you tell me why you think progress is being made? First answer from every one of them was that Black Lives Matter is now a well-known and well-funded organization. I think eight of the nine said that they had put a Black Lives Matter thing on their social media, their Snapchat or TikTok or Instagram or whatever they use, and at least half of them said that they had T-shirts with Black Lives Matter on it, etc. Some of the group was black, some was white, some was Hispanic, but different ones had worn shirts, and and a few had sent money. So Black Lives Matter. Another person spoke up and said, and you know Colin Kaepernick, he began kneeling during NFL games, during the national anthem, but it didn't die with him, they said. And that's why we feel so positive about the the momentum that's being made. It caught other athletes in other sports now also do it. I talked to them about virtue signaling. I talked to them about moral posturing. I spoke to them about this idea that we can, can be convinced that something's happening when it's really not. If we take the signals in the wrong way and I asked them, Did they know when Kaepernick first began to kneel and when Black Lives Matter first hit the national scene? It dawned on them fairly quickly that it was before Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd in May of 2020. And I asked them, if a big difference is being made by these things that you speak about, then why was Chauvin still on the street in Minneapolis in May of 2020? No answer. But you could tell they were contemplating, even concerned as we had this conversation. I said, let me ask you a different question that might be easier for you to answer. Do you think the next Derek Chauvin is out there? Is there an officer with a dozen or a dozen and a half complaints about abuse of authority? Is there an officer out there who can't be disciplined properly, maybe because of a contract, a union police union contract. Do you think there's another Derek Chauvin out there that may kill again this month or next year or the year after that, that's not being addressed every single one of them? Yes, we do. I said back to my original question, do you think progress is being made on this subject? Every single one of them, not enough. Now, again, the point is simply this. They, they, Felt pretty good that because there was some visible action around the topic that something must be being done. It didn't take me long to convince them that maybe nothing's being done or at least not enough is being done. I suggested to them that somebody's going to have to get down in the nitty gritty of renegotiating police union contracts with municipalities in order to really address that issue. And that no amount of public activity, moral posturing, virtue signaling, kneeling, fundraising, whatever, is going to fix the issue until the contracts are rewritten. So it's going to be a little harder to fix than maybe they thought. But at least I felt like they understood that the problem wasn't being addressed addressed to the degree that they thought it was being addressed. And then the final point, the fifth point, is just this. We can, when we are self-righteous we tend to sometimes point the blame at the wrong thing. And if we don't identify the real problem, then we can never provide the real solution, obviously. For example, today, if you really want to earn social credit, if you really want to earn moral credit, if you really want to get some virtue chips in your bag, the easiest thing to do is blame every problem on discrimination. So maybe it's uh, racism, maybe it's uh, bigotry, maybe it's misogyny, maybe it's transphobia, maybe it's whatever. If we blame it on discrimination, we look good because we show we're on the right side of the current moral trends. If discrimination is the problem, then let's identify it and let's weed it out. Everybody, politicians want to read out discrimination. Preachers are desperate to weed out discrimination. Parents and school teachers and so on and so forth. The problem, of course, comes when discrimination is not the problem, but that's the first thing we cry because we think it makes us look good. And then the real solution, the real solution is never found because the real problem is never identified, I guess, if you will. So, so this is what I would say. Public policy analysts talk about things called externalities. For example, they'll say when a manufacturing plant pollutes or they dump stuff into a river. The owner of the manufacturing plant may benefit because they make a lot of money, but they live somewhere outside of the area that they're polluting. But there are externalities caused, and the cost of those externalities to the surrounding area from the pollution or the the, the um, diluted, uh, polluted water, the externalities are always greater socially than the private benefit of that one person. I would use that exact same public policy concept here. I think virtue signaling, I think moral posturing, I think self-righteousness causes externalities. So the signaler, the posturer, the the one that's the most self-righteous, they will accrue, maybe even amass, this moral credit for being on the right side of history, for being righteous and being good. But the cost, the externality, Paid by the larger society, in most of the examples I've given here uh, in this podcast, I believe far outweigh any private benefit that accrues. So obviously, the call to us is we have to be on guard. We need to be for stuff, not against stuff, and we need to make sure that we're not too concerned about how people view us. We need to make sure that we're not concerned about looking good compared to others, are always stating very vocally and publicly that we're on the right side of this issue or that issue. We need to try to limit our own self-righteousness and our own virtue signaling, understanding now that it's creating negative externalities all around us. All right, that's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, this is Andy.